This is Lies People Tell, the podcast where self-help and true crime meet. I'm your host, Frank Runnels. So glad to have you join me today uh, in another excursion into detection of deception and finding the truth. Uh, Today, we want to talk a little bit about uh, stories and the parts of stories and how they can be good indicators of the truth or veracity of what you're being told. What, before we get into that, I want to, uh, have you think about something that psychologists say, and I think this is applicable, uh, to our everyday lives, especially in the area we're talking about here in detection of deception. The psychologists say awareness is curative, meaning if you're aware of something, then you're on the road to curing it, or if not, at least curing it, mitigating it as much as possible. But if you're unaware, you certainly can't cure it. You can't mitigate it. And that's our mission here is to make you aware of how people use language to deceive and trick us and mislead us. So I want you to always keep that in mind. Awareness is curative. Now, when we start out looking at statements or, or trying to learn how to pick out deceptive language, the first step is we want to look at the stories we're being told. And we're told stories all the time. People will tell us stories about what they did, what happened to them, what other people have done. And sometimes there is indicators there that may give you the belief that maybe they're not being completely honest. They're trying to sell it a little too hard. They're trying to convince us because there's really three ways that communication is used. Either they're trying to convey information. They're giving you the facts of what happened. They're trying to convince you or they're trying to combine uh, the facts with trying to convince you. That's usually uh, a little bit of what we see. But sometimes we have people that are just strictly trying to convince us with no facts, no evidence to back it up. They are just trying to convince you of what they're saying is true and honest and how dare you not believe them. Whenever you hear that, always be on alert because people should be trying to convey information or at a minimum convey information with some minimal convincing. But if all they're doing is trying to convince you, probably is a problem. So when we're talking about stories, stories actually have three parts to them. Just like a movie or a book, a story, a statement has three parts. Movies or plays usually come in three three acts. Act one, act two, act three. Act one in a movie would be what they call the setup. The setup is, is where we learn about the main characters, their relationships, and the world they live in. In statements, we call that the prologue. So in the deceptive language analysis, the setup, the first act, the first part of the story is the prologue. The second act would be called the confrontation. In a movie, it would be the confrontation. 
in deceptive language analysis, we call that the, the incident. It is the main topic of what happened to the person, the incident, what occurred. It is what the story or the statement is about. Now, when you think about how do you transition from the prologue to the incident, there's usually the, the transition occurs when the person telling the story finally gets to the main topic, whether it's the sexual assault that they're talking about, the robbery, an argument they had with a coworker, a disagreement, or maybe an accident that occurred, a car accident, or how they hurt themselves, or maybe they accidentally hurt someone else. It's at that point when they transition from telling you the setup, how it led up to the incident, to that confrontation, that incident occurred. That's where the incident starts, the prologue ends. And then the last part, Act 3, in movies is called the resolution. We call it in deceptive language analysis, the epilogue. This is how the story ends. This is the aftermath of the incident. This is how the conflict in the movie is resolved. And it also in the movies, it gives the characters that opportunity to have a new sense of who they are after experiencing the incident. And in statements, it's the exact same way. In that epilogue, many times you will see where the character, the main person telling the story or the other characters in the story will have been transformed because of the incident itself. And this is where you will see in truthful statements, statements that have very little deception, the the, uh, emotions coming out. And we'll, we'll talk about that in another episode. That's a whole different topic, but the aftermath, the epilogue is how it resolves. So when you think of a statement, whether it's a written statement or someone telling you a story or giving you a statement of what occurred, always remember it has three parts, the prologue, what leads up to it. That's the setup. The incident, the confrontation, the main theme of the statement or the story or the movie, what it's about, and then the aftermath, the epilogue, act three, what occurred afterwards? How did the story end? What was the transformation of the individuals in the story, the characters of the story? Now, why is this important? What we've found through research and common sense, but mainly research that the larger the incident is in a statement, the more likely it's truthful. Now, why would that be? Well, if you're telling the story of something that have to you pick, whatever it may be, you had a car accident or you were assaulted by someone at the gas station because they had road rage or you had an argument with someone. The main topic of that story should be that incident. 
that's the main thing. That's the most important thing. Everything leading up to that is not nearly as important as that. Now, yes, do we need some sort of setup, some reason why we're at that location where this incident happened? Absolutely. There, there has to be a prologue laying out how we got to this situation. How long does it need to be is the question. Now, there's different uh, schools of thought on the length of the three parts of a uh, statement. Some people, like uh, the author Don Rayburn, Raybon, believes that each part of the statement, the prologue, the incident, and the epilogue, what we call in statement analysis or deceptive language analysis, the pie, should be roughly one-third each. Each part of the statement should be roughly that to be deemed as a truthful or non-deceptive statement. Buddy Rudisall, who wrote uh, one of the definitive books on statement analysis many years ago, uh, former Army CID uh, investigator, believes that the prologue should be approximately 20%. The incident box should be make up about 60% of the statement and the epilogue should be about 20%. And then you have Avron Sapir, who is the founder of SCAN, Scientific Content Analysis. Uh, I can't remember what the N stands for. But he believes a prologue should be 25%, incident box 50%, epilogue 25%. For me, when I analyze a statement using deceptive language analysis, I want, I don't put a specific percentage, but what I look for is how much of the statement is dominated with the main topic, the incident, why they're telling me this story. If it's less than one third, that's a problem. I expect the incident box to make up the majority of the statement. The bigger the incident box, the better I like it. The smaller the prologue and the epilogue, the more likely it is to be a, a truthful or non-deceptive statement. Because reality, when you think about it, say you were a college student and you had a late night class and you're walking to your car. And once you get to your car, right before you get to your car in the parking garage or the parking lot out there in the dark. Someone approaches you, grabs you around the throat, sticks something in your back, and it feels like a gun. And you are robbed of your money. They take your wallet or your purse and make you lay down on the ground, and then they leave. You report this to campus police. How do you start that story? Do you start the story with what you did first thing this morning when you got up and then you had breakfast and then you went to the gym and worked out and what you did at the gym and then you went to your first class and it was Professor Guggenheimer's, you know, left-handed puppetry class and what we had for lunch and then you saw John and we went out and uh, had a, you know, afternoon snack or what, whatever. Would you start the story that, or would you say, 
Well, I got out of class at approximately 9 p.m. And I was walking to my car when? And then you launch into the incident. Because that's the main topic. That's the most important thing that happened to you that day. Not what you had for a breakfast. Not what you did at the gym or any other classes. And then you finish it up with, and I called you or I reported this to the police when I knew I was safe. Or do you spend a long time laying out a dissertation about everything you did after the incident? So in that scenario, if the incident box is actually the smallest of the three, chances are there's some uh, deception going on. They are not wanting to tell you the full story. As we talked about earlier in a previous episode, details make all the difference because when you're lying, lying is hard to do and you have to give enough detail that makes it reasonable, believable that you're not holding back, but yet not so much that you can't keep it straight because you're going to have to tell a story numerous times that it will, will stand up under scrutiny and questioning. And that, uh, it's believable. It seems like something that could actually happen. And sometimes you're trying to gain sympathy by your story, because if people are sympathetic to you, they may not, uh, scrutinize you as much. We have, uh, this thing and, and there's, there's a book about it called duped where we have what the, uh, author guy named Levin says that we have a truth default. And if someone can be made to be look sympathetic, either by someone else or by themselves, that they, they look sympathetic, they make you have sympathy for them. The chances are you're going to believe them. You're going to give them the benefit of the doubt. You're going to default to the truth because by and large, we want to believe people. We don't want to go through life believing everyone's being untruthful and they're liars and they're trying to trick us or cheat us. Now, the reality is, is that is the case. Now that doesn't mean you have to be negative about it. Uh, you don't have to be sad or mad about it. I prefer to believe that, uh, knowing that and being aware is curative, knowing that people do that will protect you and you can deal with that. But the reality is, is many people really do have that truth default. So when you hear a statement that gives you very little information about what happened, the main topic of what they're supposed to be talking about, that should give you pause. That should make you want to ask some questions. What is this all about? Okay. So let me, let me read you a statement to give you an illustration of what we're talking about. This statement is given by a salesman, traveling salesman, who reported to police that he was robbed outside of his hotel. Now, let me read you your statement, and then we'll parse it out and break it down into specific parts. This statement is 15 lines long, and when you want to uh, determine the pie, what we do is we count up the number of lines in the statement. If it's a written statement, 
Now, if it's a verbal statement, you're just going to have to do a mental calculation. But we count up the number of lines in a statement, and everything leading up to the incident is considered the prologue. So we take that number of lines and divide it by the total length of the statement to get a percentage of what the prologue makes up of the statement. Then we count up the number of lines in the incident, incident being when the person, if it's a violent assault, recognizes he's uh, in danger and it ends when he realizes the danger's passed or in a car accident scenario where right before you, you know, have the accident, that's where the incident starts and the aftermath, the episode, it will end when you realize you're safe and that uh, you are going to have to deal with the accident by calling the police, the tow truck, mom, dad, whoever. We once again count up those numbers, divide it, and come up with a percentage of the incident. And then the epilogue is we count up the number of lines in the epilogue of the aftermath of what, how the story ends and give that a percentage. So let me read you this statement and uh, we'll break it down. The question asked was, tell me what happened. When a wake-up call came at 6 a.m., I was already up because I don't sleep well in motels. I had been watching the early news. They were talking about the terrible airline crash. They are still finding body parts. I then took a shower. It was a quick one because the water was not very hot. Got dressed and went to the lobby for the continental breakfast. I had a donut, greasy but good, and a cup of coffee. I then went back to my room. Checked to make sure I had packed everything, got my bags, and put them in the trunk of the car. I then went back to the lobby to check out. I got another cup of coffee while I was there. I then used my Visa card to pay for the room, but the system was down, and it took some time to verify it. I then walked to my car, as I w and as I was putting my key in the lock, a man poked something in my back and told me not to move. He took my keys and my wallet and told me to get in the car and lie face down and not move. I did as I was told until I was sure he was gone. I then went back to the lobby and had them call 911 and waited for you to get there. So when you hear this, do you see in your mind the balance or how out of balance this statement is? How much does he dedicate to the most important thing that happened to him that day, maybe in his entire life, being robbed by some armed assailant in the parking lot. He actually dedicates very little to it. So the prologue starts at the very beginning when he talks about the wake-up call and then he doesn't sleep well and, you know, he took a shower but it wasn't very hot and he had a greasy donut for breakfast and trouble with checking out, and then he had another cup of coffee. All of that is BS. Did it happen? Probably, maybe, who knows. But why is he telling us all of that? And then he spends only three sentences in this 15-line statement talking about being robbed, okay? Because where the prologue ends and the incident starts is when he says, a man poked something in my back and told me not to move. He took my keys in my wallet and told me to get in the car and lie face down and not move. 
I did as I was told, and I was until I was sure he was gone. And that's where the incident ends. Why did he spend so little time talking about the most important thing? Because the reality is, is you or I, if we were really robbed and we were given a statement to police, we would probably start out while well, I was walking to my car after checking out of the hotel at this time, when, and then launched into a man poked something in my back. Not this guy. No, no. He spends an inordinate amount of time telling us all kinds of minutia, non-pertinent detail before he gets to the incident. Well, why is that? Well, people put off telling the lie, and this is what this is in his statement, because I'll tell you what actually happened here in a moment. Because it's hard to do. Because they know that once they commit themselves to this lie, they're caught. Now they're lying to law enforcement. That may be a problem. No one wants to be caught in a lie. So they put it off as long as they can. They want to buy time because it's hard to do. They're building up their nerve and trying to form some sort of setup that is going to launch them into a lie that they can tell quickly, get it over with without a lot of detail and move on. Because when you look at what he said, replay the incident, there's almost no detail. As a matter of fact, he, he says he poked something in his back. Well, what did he poke in his back? Did it feel like a gun? Did it feel sharp and pointy like a knife? Did it feel like a honey baked ham, a basketball? What, what was it that poked him in the back? Cause trust me, you would know, you would be able to give some sort of explanation like it felt like a gun, the barrel of a gun, or it felt like a knife. But not this guy. It was something. And once again, he gives no description of the guy. Or how did he even get in the car? He says he took the car keys away. Uh, did the guy unlock the car? Did he make him unlock the car? Did he see him when he got into the car? Did he make him close his eyes? He didn't give any of those pieces of information. These are all the things I would want to be asking him about and having to explain. But he spends a lot of time giving us all this, what I call extraneous information, which extraneous information sounds like it's useful, useless information. It really isn't. It's just extraneous to the topic at hand. The topic at hand is the robbery. He gives that to buy time and also many times to, to justify his actions or behaviors and why he is, uh, he's trying to give the impression that he's being incredibly helpful. He's not holding anything back. He's giving you everything he knows. Problem is, is everything he knows is not of any use to you because it's not addressing the topic at hand. So the way the uh, prologue, the pie breaks down for this statement is the first 11 lines make up, the prologue, which is approximately 75% of the statement. The incident is approximately three lines, which is 20% of the statement. And the epilogue is about one line long, which is 5%. So he spends the majority of the time setting up the story, laying out the main characters, everything that was happening, the world that he was abiding in at the time of the incident. He spends 75% of the statement telling us that and only 20% telling us about the robbery. Why is that? Well, 
he knew he was going to have to lie. Here's the the real story. Uh, traveling salesman, got a little lonely, uh, been on the road a long time, purchased the services of a, uh, you know, lady of the night, if you will, a, a soiled dove, as they used to call them in the Old West. And uh, while he was in the bathroom, of course, she takes all of his money out of his wallet and takes off. He's ripped off. Now he's broke. And uh, he's got to give some sort of explanation to his bosses and his wife of how he ended up losing all that money. So he concocts a story that he was robbed out in the parking lot. And, of course, luckily for him, the cops found his wallet in the bushes right beside the parking lot with no money in it, but all of his credit cards and driver's license, everything else, every pertinent piece of information you keep in your wallet, still there, it's still intact. Whoa, how lucky is that, right? The reality is is he, he had tossed it over there to make it appear like the robber had taken his wallet, taken the money, and tossed it. It was a complete fabrication. And, you know, he eventually was confronted with all his inconsistencies and the lack of detail and fessed up. So that's how we know this story. But once again, we can see how a statement, something as simple as this, can be very deceptive if you don't know what you're looking for. Okay, so I want to give you one more statement. This is the Susan Smith statement. Susan Smith, back in 1994, October of 1994, uh, and it's just a little dated, but this is an excellent statement in a lot of ways. It gives us a lot of insight and uh, into good examples of deceptive language used in a statement. She was a small-town girl in Union uh, County, South Carolina, that uh, married to uh, her husband, David, who was the manager at the Winn-Dixie Supermarket there. And... Uh, she really had higher aspirations in life than being the wife of the manager of the Winn-Dixie. So she worked at a, call, uh, a company called Consco, which was a manufacturer of tube socks. As we harken back to our high school days where we wore the, the almost knee-high cotton tube socks with the three stripes around the top, well, they manufactured them. And she worked there as a secretary and met Tom Finley, the son of the owner of the company, and he was the most eligible bachelor in Union County, which, you know, is a low bar to, to overcome, but, you know, facts are what they are. She enticed him into having a short-lived uh, fling, sexual in nature. He looked at it as a good time. She looked at it as a ticket uh, to her way out of a life of, you know, poverty, or at least a meager lifestyle. She had higher aspirations than being the wife of the manager of the Winn-Dixie supermarket. The problem is, is she fell for Tom. Tom didn't fall for her. Tom looked at it more as a dalliance, you know, good times. She was uh, what they call back in the day a round heel. Well, she had two sons, Michael and Alex, five, a four-year-old and a two-year-old. And she was pursuing Tom, and Tom sent, sent her a letter, and I'm not going to read the letter, 
because it's a very long letter, but there's a part of the letter where he tells her point blank. I don't want kids. I've never had the interest in having kids in my life. I'm happy for you and I'm proud of you. And I think you're a great mother. And I think you're doing a great thing by being a mother to these children. I just don't see them in my life. That I think it was the trigger that tripped her and caused her to then take her sons, these two little babies, four-year-old and a two-year-old, Michael and Alex, put them in the car seats, strap them into the car seats in the back seat of a red Mazda, drive out to the John D. Long Lake boat ramp, get out of the car, and let that car slowly roll into the lake and slowly submerge while listening to her babies cry and scream for help. And she allowed those babies to drown because she felt like if those kids were out of her life, she would have a chance with Tom. Now the problem is, is how does she explain what happened to the kids? That's where this statement comes in. So let me read you this statement. Keep in mind, she's reporting this statement and she needs to be telling us because she claims that she was at a red light in Union, South Carolina when she was carjacked by a black male. And she's telling the police, the investigators, what happened with this statement. They asked her to write a statement, and this is the statement she gave. Okay, remember, the main topic of her statement is the carjacking, kidnapping of her kids, right? So let me read this statement to you. I arrived home around 6 p.m. on Tuesday, October 25th, 1994. It had been an upsetting day for me. When I walked in the door, my phone was ringing. Before I could answer it, they hung up. I have call return on my phone, so I dialed back, and it was my mom. I asked her if she was going to be home because I might come over. When I'm upset, I have to go somewhere or do something. She told me that she was going to Nick's game at 7, and it would probably be only last an hour or so, and she would be back home sometime after 8. She asked me if she wanted me to just let her come by my house, and I told her no, that I would rather come see her. She didn't know that I was upset. We ended the conversation with me planning on coming to her house. I hung up the phone and went to the living room with Michael and Alex, and if I recall correctly, he put a movie in the VCR. I went into the kitchen and tried to find them something to eat. I decided to fix them pizza. They played uh, in the meantime, and I played with them. Now, keep in mind, she's supposed to be telling us about this kidnapping and carjacking. But she's talking about making pizza. Because of my conversation with Tom earlier, this is Tom Finley she's referring to, I was concerned about him, and I knew that he was at Hickory Nuts with Susan Brown. Now, Susan Brown was another woman that Tom was seeing in Susan Smith's direct competition. So I called Hickory Nuts to talk to Susan to see how Tom was. I could tell by talking to her that she couldn't say much about Tom because Tom was sitting beside her. She told me she would call me later and talk to me. Yeah, right. I said, okay. I really didn't remember what else I did after that. Before I left that night, I also received a call from David. David is her husband. He said he was just calling to see what we were doing 
and to just chit chat. He could tell that something was bothering me and he asked me what was wrong. I told him I couldn't tell him. He said, you can tell me anything. And I said, not this. What is she not being able to tell him? Okay. We ended the conversation with him saying that if I needed him, I could call him. After that phone call, I began to prepare a diaper bag for Michael and Alex. Now, keep in mind, once again, she's supposed to be telling us about the carjacking, right? And the kidnapping. Since I was going to my mom's, I was just going to go ahead and give them a bath at her house. So I got them some pajamas ready and I fixed Alex a bottle. It was around eight or a little after when I left the house. When I left, you, I, you could tell that I had been crying. So I said, we will just ride around a little while because I didn't want my mom to know that I'd been upset. So we rode around all over Union and up to Jonesville and I was riding and I just thought that Michael and Alex hadn't seen Mitch in a while. So I asked Michael if he wanted to go see Mitch and he told me yes. So I said to myself, we'll go see Mitch. And I called mom from there and let her know that I wasn't coming over. Unfortunately, I never made it to Mitch. Okay. Finally, we're probably going to get to what we asked her to tell us about to start with at after 76 lines, she's finally going to tell us I had stopped at the red light at Monarch mill and I was waiting for the light to change. A black man jumped in my car, put a gun to my side and said, drive or I'll kill you. I went into hysterics and started screaming. Why are you doing this? What do you want? He just told me to shut up and drive or he'd kill me. Michael asked me who that man was and what was wrong. I tried to comfort him and tell him that everything would be okay. The black man allowed me to talk to Michael and Alex a couple of times, but then he told me that that was enough. I continued to drive and was praying to the Lord to take care of me and my children. Out of nowhere, the black man told me to stop. It was odd to me that he was asking me to stop right there in the middle of the road on that highway. I questioned him about stopping. Now, keep in mind, think about this. You've just been carjacked. The guy sticks a gun in your side and says, drive, or I'll kill you. And then he says, stop. And you start arguing and say, well, why, why would you want to stop here? I mean, this is crazy. We're stopping in the middle of the road. That makes no sense. Why would you want to stop here? You know, there's a perfect good Stuckey's right up the road. We can get a pecan log and enjoy ourselves. No, no, she's not arguing. It's nonsensical, right? Okay, I questioned him about stopping. He told me right quick, again, to stop the car right now. I was going to pull over onto the side of the road and stop, but he told me no, to stop right here. He then told me to get out of the car or I'm going to kill you. And I opened my car door and he told me that I would have to get my babies. And I told him I would have to get my babies. And as he was moving over to the driver's seat, he was pushing me out of the car and he told me, that he didn't have time. And I screamed and begged for him to please let me get my children. And he said again that he didn't have time, but told me that he would not hurt my children. He shut the door and took off. I dropped to the road like a ton of bricks, screaming for someone to please help me. I went totally numb. I then jumped up and started running up the road, continuing to scream for help. I ran to the closest house that had lights on. I could barely see because it was so dark. I got on this front porch and banged on the door, continuing to cry for help. A lady and man opened the door and saw that I was in trouble and I could hardly tell her what was wrong. 
she took me into her house and tried to calm me enough so I could tell her what had happened. Once they knew what had happened, they immediately phoned the police. As I sat in that lady's house, I prayed and prayed that my children be okay. I was devastated. I was hysterical. I couldn't understand why. Well, uh, what do you think? She took 76, what is it, uh, 78 lines to finally get to the main topic of the statement. Now ask yourself, realistically, if this actually happened to you, would it take you 76 lines to get to the point of telling about the black man jumping in the car? I don't believe so. Reasonable people would have started the story as well. I was driving around, uh, you know, planning to go to my mom's house and change my mind. I was going to a friend's house named Mitch. I was sitting at the stoplight at Monarch's Mills when. Okay, now that's a reasonable prologue. That's a setup of the main characters, what you were doing and why you were out there at that incident. Not her. Oh, no. She goes into a long dissertation about what she did, what she made the kids, who she called, who she talked to. She's uh, doing a little stalker activity on the, the boyfriend, checking up on her, calling, doing a passive-aggressive thing of calling the girl that the boyfriend's out with to find out what the heck's going on. Talks to the husband and basically says, I can't tell you what why I'm upset or what I'm thinking, but, uh, you know, I can't talk to you about this, but she's made a decision. She's going to get rid of those kids under the misguided belief that she can then get Tom and have his affections. Crazy talk. I realize, but the pie breaks down like this 70, the, the, the whole statement handwritten statement is 138 lines long. The first 78 lines are the prologue which equates to 57% of the statement. The incident box, the main topic of what she's talking about, is 49 lines long, which equates to 28% of the statement. And the epilogue is 29 lines long, which is 15%. So the prologue is 57% long. Incident box is 28%. And the... Epilogue is 15%, way out of balance. The majority of the statement should be about the incident. It would be far shorter, the statement would be. It would contain far more detail, and it would not be so far out of balance. She's given us all kinds of information, all of this extraneous information. Now, it's good information, but it's extraneous information leading up to the incident. Why? Well, she knows she's going to lie. She knows she's fabricating this story about the black carjacker. So she's trying to buy time. She's putting off telling the lie and committing the lie. And she's also trying to lay the groundwork that I'm being completely cooperative and being very helpful. I'm telling you everything that happened. But all of the stuff is immaterial. It's not pertinent to the incident itself. Nothing she told us in that first 78 lines is going to help us find those kids. Nothing she told us in the incident box is going to help us either because she gave us no details. But what she did do is that 78 lines in the prologue 
justified her actions and behavior because she had to be able to explain why were you out here in the middle of the dark at night by John D. Long Lake? She had to use the vehicle of the black man carjacking her and forcing her to drive out there, then kicking her out of the car to justify why she's going up to this person's house at night in the dark, screaming about her babies are gone because she knew she was going to this lake. She knew she was going to kill those kids. She knew she was not going to have a car and she was going to be on foot. So she had to justify how she got there on foot in the middle of the night. Hysterical. That's what the three parts of this story is about. So when you are listening to a story, whether it's you're asking your kid about what happened, why the car has a dent in the front fender, or why uh, you're a manager and you have uh, two employees that are having a conflict and they had an altercation of some sort, or you're a criminal investigator dealing with a kidnapping, carjacking, which eventually turns into a homicide, same rules apply. Look at how the story is broken out. And do they dedicate the majority of the story to the main topic at hand? whatever the incident is, or do they spend a lot of time building up to it, giving you a setup and then give you a very bare bones, general in nature type of description of what happened. Whenever you see that, whenever the incident box is small, the smallest part or makes up the least, the least amount of the statement, there's something wrong here. When they spend way too much time building up to it, you better have your, your flashing red lights going because uh, somebody's not being completely honest. All right, so that's lesson one. That's the broad strokes of when you're looking at a statement, these are the things I want you to consider. How much time do they dedicate to the topic that they're telling you about or how much time do they dedicate to either giving you the setup or telling you the aftermath of it? And how much of what they're telling us is just conveying information uh, information versus trying to convince us, trying to make themselves seem sympathetic. Because if they're sympathetic and you feel sympathy for them, chances are you're going to give them the benefit of the doubt and maybe believe them when they don't deserve that benefit of the doubt. With that, I want to thank you for listening to me today. And uh, we will next week uh, go on to the next uh, level of indicators of veracity that I look for. And we'll go over a couple of different other statements. If you've liked what we've talked about today and you find this interesting, please share this podcast with your friends and co-workers and colleagues. Uh, Spread the word. Uh, If you'd like, please subscribe so you get this every week uh, downloaded immediately. Every Wednesday, it'll pop up on your your iPhone or your, uh, you know, iOS device. And uh, you can listen to it on your drive to work or when you're working out or taking a dog for a walk. My, my goal here is to give you something to think about, to give you a little behind the scenes uh, in criminal cases and how we approach things, and also to just help you be prepared to uh, call BS when you see it and to be a better communicator so you don't 
do the same type of deceptive language type of things when you're dealing with people. So thank you for listening to me, and we will talk to you guys uh, next week.